Well, grab your Bible. Go ahead and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. We've been in a series on the doctrine of sin. We called it Six Weeks on Sin. And uh, I'm pretty excited we've managed to squeeze those six weeks into about eight. And uh, it looks like it's going to be more like nine or ten now. Um, we looked at, as you remember, uh, basically the basics, right? The basics of the doctrine of sin. We talked about the origin of sin, the definitions, difference between the sin nature and individual sins themselves. Uh, and then two weeks we spent on the reality of sin in the believer's life, that the truth is that when we get saved, uh, that old nature doesn't just go away. We are to be dead to sin, but sin is not dead. Remember that? And then uh, we talked about, uh, after that, a battle plan, that if sin does exist, and if it is um, going to be a fight, we need to have a plan of attack against it as believers. So we talked about a plan, just a practical and spiritual plan for fighting this battle, this daily war against the sin that still resides in us. And then last week, you remember, we talked about the consequences and the ramifications for allowing sin to remain in the life of the believer. If we do, if we don't fight that fight, if we don't go to war, if we don't do the Romans 7 thing that we looked at with the, the fight in the, in the uh, spirit of Paul, if we don't do that, there are going to be consequences, Scripture says. And I showed you that last week in Joshua chapter 7. Well, this week, um, the question for us is, how does the church deal with sin in the life of a believer, right? Because that's, that's got to be an issue. When it comes to the doctrine of sin, okay, how is the church going to deal with it if sin is in the life of the believer? Corporately, is there a responsibility by the leadership of the church? Is there a responsibility by the membership of the church, the body, the family of the church? Should action be taken when ongoing, unrepentant, unconfessed sin is in the life of one of the family members? And... Um, you know, I thought maybe I could do this in one week, but I'm going to split it. We're going to, we're going to look at this in two different phases. And um, here's, here's kind of why. I told you uh, in the last couple sermons about the fact that um, there are some things that just, that just knowing them helps us in the fight, right? I told you how just knowing last week that there are consequences to allowing sin to remain in your life, just knowing that, that if you know that, that God will not let you get away with that, it helps in the fight, right? Um, so this week, there's something else that I just feel like if we know it, if we get a hold of it, if we can understand it, it's going to help us in this idea of understanding how the church responds to sin in the life of the believer. And here's what it is, very, very simply. And, and again, this is, a, this is a simple thing, but maybe those very simple things we, we overlook the easiest, right? And it's the fact that before we talk about the process of how the church deals with sin in the life of a believer, and that's going, to be a, that's going to be a frank and tough talk next week, before we get to that process of how does the church respond, what are the steps that we take, before we talk about that, we need to all agree and come to the knowledge and understanding that we do have the right and the responsibility and the duty as fellow believers to hold each other accountable. You know, uh, I know that that is... Um, for you guys, probably a given. And again, very simple thing to uh, comprehend and understand and agree with. But in our world today, uh, the fact is, we don't, we don't like that kind of thing. And church discipline in and of itself is an oddity to the world. I mean, we look, like, uh, we look foolish to the world that we would hold each other accountable because the world says, uh, 
that every truth is subjective. Whatever I believe is right. Whatever you believe can be right. We can believe totally different things, but the, you know what I'm talking about? That line between right and wrong has been so blurred that if I were to try and say to you or hold you accountable to what truth is, well, then the world would just say, well, that's, that's silly because everything is subjective. I mean, the world says, don't, don't judge me. My problems, my issues, my life is my life, right? And so in the world's scheme of things, there is no responsibility towards each other. In fact, we like to say, hey, leave me alone. You have no right. I am my own person. I make my own decisions. I live with my own decisions. And for you to step in and get involved in that, well, we just don't like that as human beings, frankly. And that carries over. I mean, that's hard in the church. That's why we have to deal with this, because it's not an easy process. That's why I'm glad there is a process, biblically, because in our own humanness, we don't like the process. We don't like to have to deal with this sort of stuff. Something feels odd about us getting into another person's life, because we don't want people to get into our life, right? But there's a way to do it. And next week, we're going to talk about the way to do it. This week, I just need for us all to come to the understanding and agree on the one simple fact and principle that we have the duty and responsibility to get it involved. Amen? Um, we are not lone rangers. I'm going to sit down here. Consequences are felt by all when we uh, enter into sin, and so all become responsible. Does that make sense? If we talked about last week, is true that when we get into sin, ongoing, unrepentant, unconfessed sin, meaning unrepentant, meaning that we're not turning away from it, we're not fighting it, unconfessed, meaning we're not calling it sin. It's not sin to us. If we are a believer in that kind of situation, right, we understand that that's going to affect and affect the whole body like, like, a, like, a, like a, uh, an illness. It's going to spread throughout the family, right? So we have to deal with it on a family level because the impact of it is that broad. There's a story in the Old Testament that is, uh, I think, a great example of uh, the, this principle of accountability that I want us to come to an agreement on. And it's the, uh, it's the old story of David and Bathsheba. You remember that story? David uh, sees Bathsheba. He goes into her, and he basically uh, has an affair with this woman who is not his wife, and she, in fact, is married to a guy named Uriah, who is Dave, one of David's chief officers in his, in his army. And uh, actually a friend of David's. And so uh, you know the story of David and Bathsheba. They have an affair. Well, uh, David, in the end of all that, he's guilt-ridden, but he tries to cover it all up. He tries to cover up the sin in his life, right? Much like Achan last week in Joshua chapter 7, he tries to hide it in his tent. David tries to just cover it all up. In fact, uh, one of the consequences of his sin is that Uriah gets murdered, Right? He sends Uriah to the front lines of the battle, and this guy gets whacked in battle, hoping that now David gets Bathsheba, and he thinks, well, maybe now everything will be all right. Her husband's gone. Right? Further consequences is, you remember, uh, are that the baby that David and Bathsheba had together ends up dying. So we all know that there are consequences, but there's a point in the story that I, I particularly find interesting, and it, and it speaks to what we're trying to communicate today, is that... This guy named Nathan. You remember Nathan? Nathan is the prophet of God. In the Old Testament, you had a king, but you also had a prophet. You had, you had a guy who ruled the nation militarily, politically, etc. But you always had this voice from God in the nation. It's the way God designed it. That there was always a mouthpiece for God to balance 
the political, and the military. Do you understand that? And there's this guy named Nathan at the time of David's rule. And Nathan is an interesting character because he's pretty bold. Even though God has set it up in such a way that there's always a prophet to be the mouthpiece to the king, it's a pretty dangerous thing to call a king to account, right? But you remember the story. Nathan goes into David and he says to David, David, let me tell you this little story. And he gives David this elaborate scenario, really this case study. Pretty wise the way he approached it. We'll talk more about that next week as we talk about process for holding people accountable. But Nathan goes into David and he tells him this elaborate story. And he says, David, what do you think about this story that I'm telling you? Essentially, this man has his, uh, what is it, sheep stolen from another man, right? And David gets all angry and David says, uh, we have to provide justice for this scenario. I demand that justice is served. David makes the correct judgment on the situation, on the case study that Nathan puts before him. And then you remember what happens. Nathan turns around and he says, David, you are the man. And all of a sudden, David realizes that I'm the man that Nathan was telling me about in the story. I'm actually the guy he was talking about. I'm the one that stole, stole from his neighbor. So Nathan uses this principle of accountability that David is in sin. A fellow believer, if you will, is in sin. And Nathan says, I have to go and I have to confront this. And he does it wisely. He does it with compassion. And he does it with love. But he does it to restore David. I'm impressed by Nathan in a lot of ways. In fact, if I had to say so in what we named our kids, uh, which I did, um, I would maybe chosen Nathan. Don't give me that eye. Uh, I would have maybe chosen Nathan because Nathan, this guy was a stud. To go into the king and say, you are the man. I mean, that guy stood for what is right. Amen? I mean, he's an impressive guy. But you know what impresses me probably even more? Is that David, when confronted, when confronted, David received the rebuke. David didn't say, Nathan, who do you think you are? Don't you know that I'm the king? Nathan, get out of here, as a matter of fact, off with his head. David, because of his spirituality, because of his relationship with God, what did he do? He realized, yeah, Nathan's right. Now, that's a great example all the way back in the Old Testament of how this process of family accountability takes place. You know what's interesting? When you get to the New Testament, in the genealogy of Jesus... In Luke chapter 3, in Luke's genealogy of Jesus, it traces all the way back from um, Joseph and Mary. It traces all the way back through the Davidic line, uh, the ancestry of Jesus, all right? And there's a reason for that. But one of the things I found interesting when reading the genealogy, specifically in Luke, is that when it gets back to David, you know, in the genealogy it says uh, so-and-so, the son of so-and-so, the son of so-and-so, etc. You know how genealogies work? Well, when it gets back to David... It doesn't say, and then David, and then the son of David, Solomon, whom you might think it would go through. I mean, Solomon was the wisest man to have ever lived. He was the richest man to have ever lived. I mean, he was the popular son of David, right? But you know what the book of Luke says? You know the son that the book of Luke says, Jesus, the Savior of the world, comes through? Luke chooses to draw that Davidic line, not through Solomon, 
but through a son that we really don't know a whole lot about, a son of David named, guess what, Nathan. Now, I don't know this. This is just pure speculation. This is my thought. But I think that David so respected the prophet Nathan who called him on the carpet that perhaps he named one of his sons after this guy. I don't know. That's one of the questions I'm going to ask when I get to heaven. But it's interesting that Luke 3 would trace it through Nathan. We don't know anything else about the son of David named Nathan, except perhaps maybe he was named after the prophet who confronted the king. That's good. So there's, there's precedence for this thing. And we have to, like David, be willing to say, you know what, if I submit myself to the body of Christ, if I am part of this family, if I'm going to be part of the church, then I'm not a lone ranger. And I can't be surprised, I can't be shocked when I get called on the carpet. If it can happen to a king, it can happen to you and I, correct? We all are accountable to each other. One main reason is because if we mess up, it doesn't just affect us. It affects the whole body. And we'll talk about next week when we get to process that we do it out of love and all how the, the guidelines on how it's supposed to be done right, etc. But we have to do it nonetheless. If correctly done, in fact, you should know if you are the one in sin, you should know if this is done correctly, uh, that you are loved by the person who confronts you. I mean, you should know in the confrontation itself that this person is calling you to account out of love. Um, I'm happy to confess to you that uh, Preston and I, uh, although we're uh, your leadership, we, uh, we've done this on more than one occasion with each other. Nothing major, maybe things that are even small, but because we care for each other and because we love one another, and because we're both in this family for the greater glory of God, we are able to go to each other. And even when it's not easy, even when it's something that may be potentially divisive between he and I, he is free to come to me and say, you know what, Daryl, and you, you blew it on this. You know what, Daryl, um, you, you spoke out of turn on this. Or I really didn't like your attitude on this. Or I don't, I don't like the way you asked me to do this. And I'm able to go to Preston and say, Preston, you know what, man, your attitude uh, maybe was off on this. Or you didn't handle this correctly. And that you can see how there's potential that that just, that just gets ugly, right? I mean, that could get ugly fast. But there's always this, always this underlying factor that I know that he cares about me. And he's in this thing for the greater glory of God. And he knows that I care about him and I'm in this thing for the greater glory of God. And so it's not a personal attack. And we'll talk about again next week exactly why we do these things. Why do we confront each other? But here's what I want to do this week. Flip to uh, 1 Corinthians, actually chapter 4. 1 Corinthians chapter 4. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one uh, probably right under your chair, right around you there somewhere. 1 Corinthians chapter 4 is um, interesting. Let me give you the context here. I'm going to read a lot of verses to you because um, we have to understand where Paul is in his argument here. Again, this is why I don't like to do topical messages even when they're on a doctrine is because if I just taught you through the book of 1 Corinthians, you'd get all this stuff. But I've got to spend a couple minutes here catching you up on what happened in chapters 1 through 4 because we haven't gone through it. Chapters 1 through 4 of 1 Corinthians, Paul is doing essentially this. He is helping the Corinthian church to 
really understand that they cannot trim their sails to every wind of this world. You know what I mean by that? That we as a church can't trim our sails. Meaning, when the winds of this world blow, when the world says do it this way, we don't trim our sails. It's a picture of a sailboat. We don't throw up our sails to catch that wind and let that wind carry us. We trim our sails. We follow the Word of God. And Paul says to the Corinthian church, hey, there are a lot of things that we have to understand. We're not going to do it like the world does it. We have to do it the way God says do it. And that can be very unpopular. That can be very unpopular in a lot of different ways. Specifically, he's going to say in 4 and in 5, it's going to be very unpopular when it comes to church discipline that we do things God's way and not the world's way. Because there's always the potential for it to get very ugly. There's always the potential that we don't have the heart of David as the one who is the offending party, that we would receive the challenge, right? I mean, if we're like David or we're like Preston, when I call Preston on something and they receive it, I mean, that works out great. But if we're not like David, if we don't have a heart to receive those things, if we don't understand that we are in this family and we are accountable, we have submitted ourselves to each other. If we think, you know what, this is my life and you have no right to speak to my life. I do the things I want to do the way I want to do it. If that is your philosophy, which, by the way, is the philosophy of this world, that truth is subjective. What I think is right is right. What you think is right is your issue. Don't judge me. If that is your philosophy, then that's the philosophy of this world. Paul says it's not the philosophy that we hold to. We have to submit ourselves to each other. All right? Let me read you this, and uh, I'm going to blow through it. Uh, we're going to start in verse 14 of 1 Corinthians 4. And I really want to show you just a few verses in specific in chapter 5. But let's set this up. 1 Corinthians 4, 14, he says, I do not write these things to shame you, but to admonish you as beloved children. You hear Paul's heart? He loves this church. You see his attitude? Even in this thing of church discipline, it's out of love. 15, for if you were to handle countless tutors in Christ, yet you would not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I became your father through the gospel. He loves them like a father does a child. Paul says, I'm like a father to you. Not only that, 16, he says, I'm like an example to you. Therefore, I exhort you, be imitators of me. Make me your example. 17, I'm not just your father or your example figure or a mentor. He says, you need to look at me like an instructor. For this reason, I have sent to you Timothy, who is my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, and he will remind you of my ways which are in Christ. Notice they're not just Paul's ways. They're my ways which are in Christ. Just as I teach everywhere in every church, meaning this isn't just that I'm picking out you in particular. He says, I'm going to hold this standard across the board. 18, now some have become arrogant or literally puffed up as though I were not coming to you. Paul says, I'm not just like your father. I'm not just like a mentor. I'm not just like an instructor or a teacher. He says here, you know what? I have all authority of an apostle. And some of the folks in this Corinthian church we're so arrogant to think that Paul might never even come. Meaning that they were never worried that, that dad was going to show up home and discipline them. 19, but I will come soon to you, he says. 
If the Lord wills, and I shall find out, not the words of those who are arrogant, but their power. Meaning, you know what? You can talk a good game, but I'm going to see what actually comes underneath those words. Do you have any power underneath the puffed up words that you have? Paul says, I'm going to come and I'm going to find out what's really going on. 20, for the kingdom of God does not consist of word alone, but power. He says, it's not just going to be a bunch of puffed up, empty words. He said, I'm going to bring the truth. I'm going to bring the truth in power. What do you desire? 21, he gives them a little bit of a warning and a choice here. Shall I come to you with a rod? This is a good verse for dads. Shall I come to you with a rod or with love and a spirit of gentleness? Again, do you hear the heart of Paul? How does he want to come to these people? He wants to come to them like a father. He doesn't want to come with the authority of his apostleship. He wants to come in love and in gentleness. But he says, you know what, if I have to come with discipline, I'll do it. I'll do it. Chapter 5. It is actually reported that there is immorality among you. Here's the problem. An immorality of such a kind that does not exist even among the Gentiles. That someone has his father's wife. He says, there's an there's, a, there's something you guys have not dealt with as a family, as a local congregation. There's sin in the camp, and you haven't dealt with it. In particular, there's an immoral issue with his father. Someone has his father's wife, right? And he says, that's so outrageous. It's so bad. Not even the lost, not even the world, not even the Gentiles would allow such a thing to go on. He said, that's how bad, meaning that's how obvious It is that there is a problem, but they haven't dealt with the problem. You've become arrogant instead, just like others have been puffed up. You're puffed up. And instead of mourning so that the one who had done this deed would be removed from your midst, he says uh, literally there, that's a great little word picture here. He says, um, you guys are arrogant. Instead, you should have mourned. What happens when you mourn someone? What is that a picture of? picture of someone's death he said you've become puffed up and you become arrogant in the situation of someone's sin instead here's what i wish you would have done i wish you would have mourned the situation and the picture is someone has died that's how serious the situation is someone is dead and gone and what do you do when someone dies you mourn and when you mourn essentially what are you saying in your heart come back Please come back. You mourn the death of someone and you want that person back. You miss the fellowship of that person. And do you see how that applies right here? Paul says you've become arrogant, allowing this sin to remain. And what you should have done was mourn the loss of this family member. Because it's as if they've died. I wish you'd have wept over them. I wish you'd have desired to have them back. Now that's a beautiful picture right there. Verse 3, for I, on my part, though absent in the body, but present in spirit, have already judged him who has so committed this as though I were present. Paul says, listen, I'm not going to hold back judgment. If the facts are correct, if this is going on, he says, I don't even have to be there. This is a great principle, guys, because the world says what? Don't judge me. Paul says, there is a time and there is a place. When the facts are facts, there is a time to make a judgment. One of my pet peeves in this, uh, in this world is when people just flippantly throw out this deal. Don't judge me. You're not supposed to judge me. 
And on some level, there is, there is biblical place for that statement. But most of the time, that statement is taken way out of context. Folks, to judge in and of itself is not a bad thing. To judge in our world has come to mean something negative and something destructive. But that's really ridiculous, isn't it? I mean, if we really felt that, we wouldn't have judges. We wouldn't have courts. We wouldn't have government. The problem is that we don't like people judging us. But you know what we do like? Is when we are offended, I definitely want that person judged. Amen? I mean, when you run into my car, I want justice to fall. You see how how ridiculous this is? Paul says, listen, guys, don't withhold judgment. Judging the situation when the facts are clear, judging right from wrong is an ability that God has given us. To be able to tell black from white is just simple and it makes sense. It's obvious, okay? We have the capability, the God-given capability to do that. To ignore it would be ridiculous. He says, I've even done it and I'm not even there. Five, I've decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. That's a little bit about the process that we'll talk about next week. But Paul says, I'm going I'm to move along with this uh, church discipline thing. And here's the cause at the end of verse 5. Here's the goal that he hopes to reach so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. He hopes to redeem this man. Verse 6, for boasting is not good. They're actually bragging about this thing. It's not only that they don't agree with it and they call sin, sin, but they're, they're fine with it. You get the idea that they don't even care. He says, your boasting's not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? Meaning, it's going to affect and infect the whole body. It's going to spread, guys. It's going to be a cancer. It's going to spread like wildfire. We've got to get rid of it. That little bit of leaven that you put in bread makes the whole thing rise. We've got to deal with it. Seven, clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump, just as you are, in fact, unleavened. For Christ, our Passover, has been sacrificed. And there's some great imagery there uh, as to the order of the feasts in the Old Testament, but I don't have time to give you that right now. Keep going. Verse 8, Therefore, let us celebrate the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Now, 9 through 13 is the very point that I want to make. But you had to understand where Paul was going with his argument. Read verse 9. He's going to clarify an earlier letter that he wrote to the church at Corinth. Incidentally, what book are we in right now? 1 Corinthians. Do we have a pre-1 Corinthians? No, we don't. But Paul wrote other letters to these churches. And so he's referring to another letter that we don't have in our canon, okay? Here's what he says. 9. I wrote you in a letter not to associate with immoral people. He says, that's what I said. That was my statement. Don't associate with immoral people. He's going to clarify in verse 10. He says, I did not at all mean with the immoral people of this world. Now watch Paul's language here because he's going to be very specific with his wording. He says, I didn't make that statement in reference to the immoral people of this world. And when he says of this world, he's talking about the lost world. Two types of people in Paul's mind, Christians and non-Christians, okay? He says, when I said don't associate with those who are immoral, let me be very clear. I did not mean those who are immoral and who are not Christians. What I meant was, check it out. What I meant was 
uh, lost my place here. I did not at all mean with immoral people of this world or with the covetous and swindlers or with idolaters. For then you would have to go out of this world. But actually, I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother. If he is an immoral person or covetous or idolater or a rivaler or a drunkard or a swindler, not even to eat or fellowship with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? But do I not judge those? And do you not judge those who are within the church? In this clarification, I want us to find that one singular principle that we started with. That we do have this responsibility and this accountability to the rest of the body. And in this clarification, Paul makes this point. He says, you know what? I told you, don't associate with those people who are immoral. Comes back and he says, what I meant by that was, don't associate with those people who are immoral in the body. On the Christian end of immorality. Hey, can immorality live in the church? Sure can. Should it? No. Can it? Yes. Does immorality live in the world? Certainly it does. Paul says, I'm not saying don't associate with the immoral, the covetous, the idolaters of this world who are without Christ. In fact, he says almost sarcastically there, he says that would almost mean that we'd have to be out of this world. Because the point is, they're everywhere. I mean, that is the definition of a lost person. That is the definition of a sinner. Those people are everywhere. And so for us to imagine that we wouldn't associate with that immoral person, well, that would mean we'd just have to go on and go to heaven. Paul says, that's, that's ridiculous. My point was, is that if immorality, idolatry, all this litany of sin, if it is going on in the life of the brother, meaning the family member, meaning the Christian, then that guy we have to take action against. Again, we'll talk about how we take that action next week. But would you just agree in your heart that there is a place for action in the life of the church? If we trim ourselves to this world, then we're going to agree that, you know what, our lives are our own. You stay out of them. But when we submit to Christ, folks, we submit to each other. Interesting, Paul says here, uh, he calls the believer the so-called believer. It's a whole nother, whole nother discussion for that. But you get the idea that Paul's saying here that, you know what? This guy or this girl may not even be who they say they are. This person who proclaims to be a family member may not even be a family member. More to the point, this person who claims to be a Christian, because of this ongoing, unrepentant, unconfessed sin, they may not even be a Christian. Now listen, the world doesn't like us judging each other. The church doesn't like the church saying, you know what, that guy might not even be a Christian. Paul's going to go one up here and he says, I'm not only going to trim myself, not trim myself to the world, but I'm not going to trim myself to the air even of the church. You know what, I'm going to call an apple an apple, I'm going to call an orange an orange. He says, there's a place even. For us to judge between whether this guy or this girl, they may not even be a Christian. And why do you do that? You do it for their restoration. You do it to hopefully get them to the point where we know and we can trust that we see the fruit in their life that they are a believer, right? He's not doing this with an angry or a bitter heart. 
Paul loves these people. He's a father to these people. He's a mentor and an instructor. He's an apostle, the shepherd of these people in his heart. Paul's not being malicious here. But do you understand this principle? That not only are we to hold each other accountable. Paul even goes above and beyond that. He says, you know what? There may be a time and a place where we start to wonder, is this person actually in the faith? And that's tough, guys. We don't, we don't like someone questioning our salvation, do we? And that's a dangerous, dangerous deal. Verse 12, for what have I to do with judging outsiders? The point there is, that's not my job. Look at whose job he says it is. Verse 13, but those who are outside, God literally will judge. There will come a time when the gavel falls on the world. Right now, where are we? We're in a parenthesis of grace. That God is restraining his judgment on the lost world. God is being patient towards the lost world. Not desiring that any should perish, but that they would all come to him. So right now, God's being patient towards the world. Paul says, I'm, I'm patient towards the lost world because God's being patient. I trust that he will judge them when he decides to judge them. If they don't repent, if they don't trust in faith, their time in court of God is going to come. You know who I am concerned about? He says, I'm concerned about those who are on the inside. And he says, you know what? We do have a responsibility to judge in love, yes. With the facts, yes. Doing it the right way, yes. We do have, however, the responsibility to love each other enough that we will hold each other accountable to the standards that when we all join the family, we agree are the standards of God. Does that just make sense, guys? That just makes sense. That just makes sense. Now, here's what I hope. Um, here's what I hope. That if you're a Christian, you're getting a glimpse into the heart of Paul and you're seeing that this, this whole process, this whole process is needed, but it is also a beautiful process. If you don't know Christ, one of the things that the lost world, uh, I hate to use the word hate, but one of the things that the lost world hates about the church is that we are so judgmental in their minds. Listen, if you don't know Christ and you're listening to this passage, I hope you come away today saying, you know what? This God of this Bible, the God who is directing the order of the church, the God who has set this process into place, it is a God of redemption a God of salvation, a God of restoration. Frankly, he's a God of love. This is a beautiful, it is a merciful, and it is a gracious picture. In fact, lost person, this is just an example of the process that God hopes you come through in regards to salvation. You see, you have sin in the camp that is unconfessed and unrepentant. Unconfessed, meaning you won't call what God calls sin, sin in your life. What he says is sin, you rationalize as something else. You won't confess. You won't agree with God that what he says is sin is sin. And you won't repent, meaning that you won't turn. You won't go the other way. You won't run towards God. You're going to stay with your sin. You see, this whole process is the process of salvation, isn't it? It's the process that God lays out for us in mercy and in love. He calls us to repentance. He calls us back. In fact, God mourns 
over the souls of those who are turned against him. He says, I wish you would come to me so that I could gather you under my wings like a hen does its chicks. That's the heart of God. That's the heart of the church. Even in this process that has looked from the outside and even sometimes from the inside to be a cold and harsh process. Hey, I hope you come away today understanding that this process is beautiful. It is a redeeming process. It is to uphold the glory of God, the purity of the church. It is a needed process, and we all fall under it. We all fall under it. Next week, come back. We're going to talk about how to make it work well, how to do it the right way. Amen? Let's pray.